Hey y'all, you are listening to Hyperactive Hotties, a podcast about having confidence in life, work, and creativity as a baddie with ADHD. My name is Kyla and I am your host. Okay, as per usual, I'm going to start this episode with a sexy little disclaimer. I am not a doctor, I'm not a mental health professional, I'm just an artist and a bad bitch who wants to share their experiences with the world. Now listen, I don't have all of the answers. I am not perfect, but I've had quite a bit of time and I've done quite a bit of intentional thinking about implementing strategies for one, having confidence and two, managing my ADHD symptoms, specifically without the use of medication. Um, and I just, I just want, I just want to share that with people. And I don't think that that's a crime. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so don't go to the doctor and be like, Oh, I listened to this podcast and this bitch told me that I need to do this, that, and the third, like, no, like take what works for you, leave what doesn't and leave my name out of it. (laughs) Unless it's working for you. In that case, give me the credit. Um, okay. The other thing, housekeeping thing that I want to go over And, you know, maybe this is something I should only say at the end, but I'm going to say it at the beginning, and if it turns you off to listening, my apologies. Um, But I do just want to say, like, please follow, rate, and share this podcast. (laughs) Like, I hate begging people to do things for me, Um, but the more people who listen to the podcast, the more I will be able to start to monetize off of it. And then I can start to invest more money into making the podcast even better so I can get some new equipment because right now it's not it. You should see my little podcasting studio. I'm literally sitting in a pile of clean clothes that I haven't folded yet. (laughs) I'm sitting in my basement on a pile of clothes like that is no, no. Um, I want to be able to set up a cute little space for my podcasting area and I need a little bit of extra money. I want to I want to be able to use the money that I make from this podcast to invest back into the business, if you will. Um and also the other reason I want you to like, share and co- and follow is because you know, when you like when you not like, share and follow, follow, rate and share. Like follow the podcast, rate on Spotify or Apple Pods and then share on like Instagram if you can, if you want. Don't be, you know, don't push yourself if it's too hard. <laughs> but what I'm going to say is I've got a lot of really great feedback from the last couple of episodes from like the first, you know, seven or however many episodes I've done. And I know that I of course I don't want to toot my own horn. But I know that if this podcast existed when I was just getting diagnosed or when I was really in the thick of it, I would have saved myself a lot of agony and self-loathing. And I just want to get this to as many people as possible. Obviously, I don't think I'm going to save the fucking world, but... You know, save the cheerleader, save the world. Low key, though, right? Like, I want to cheer you guys on. I want you to be able to take what you deserve. I want you to be able to get opportunities with confidence. I want you to be able to live your life with confidence. Um, yeah, and I just, I just want to share this with more people, and 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 also I want to meet more people and and talk to more people, and 
if I have better equipment, then I can really invest in maybe renting out studio space or having people over to my like home studio and then really have like guests on the podcast so that you can hear from more, you know, professionals and other, you know, working individuals who are killing it in their own personal games. You know what I mean? Okay. Anyway, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Today, we are talking about ADHD and creativity. So I'm going to talk a little bit about just like general creativity and the ADHD brain. And then I'm also going to talk about like my own personal experience in building a career, like a creative career um, in the arts and in the, you know, culture sector. So first thing I want to talk about is out of the box thinking. So I read this article and read, you know, I skimmed it. I'm going to be honest with you. But the one thing that really popped off (laughs) in that article is uh, they were talking a lot about nonconformity and conceptual expansion um, and also divergent thinking. So this one, the one thing that the article really touched on was this concept of, of divergent thinking that I was, you know, really resonating with. Um, And their definition of divergent thinking is the ability to think of many ideas from a single starting point. And I think that this is something that I never really understood, like, wasn't the norm. Like, I think for a lot of non-ADHD people, when they encounter a problem, they think of a solution, like one solution. And if that solution doesn't work, you know, not always, but I have noticed that sometimes people work very hard to try to make that solution work, or they spend a lot of fucking time like working on that personal, like that one solution that they came up with, regardless of the information that they've received, that it does or does not work. (laughs) You know what I mean? Whereas someone with ADHD, if something doesn't work once, we are extremely quick to come up with another solution and try it out. Not only is it not that difficult, but it just, it always feels like the natural next step. And honestly, like Sometimes I, I feel like I have too many solutions for one problem and I and I start to get a little bit of that like analysis paralysis where it's like, okay, I could do it this way, but I could also do it this way, but I could also do it this way, but I could also do it this way. This is sort of where I get stuck when it comes to cleaning and care tasks and stuff like that because, you know, I'm like, oh, I need to shower. I'm not going to be able to, you know, I'm not going to be able to get my work done until I shower. Like, okay, but it doesn't make sense to shower before I do all my cleaning and get dirty. But then it's like, okay, but I need clean clothes. So it doesn't make sense to start showering until after I've done my laundry, but maybe I should, you know what I mean? Like there's so many ways to do a thing. And then I just end up like getting overwhelmed with the amount of options. So it's a little, you know, double-sided coin, but, um, I want to give an example of like divergent thinking that I had in my own life a few years ago. Uh, my car door was like kind of busted, like the driver's side door. And it was really difficult to open it from the outside. Like it would get really stuck. I'd have to really yank it. Um, and then one day, like literally the day I was moving out of Chicago and driving all the way back to PA, like we were packing up my, my car, the door like finally broke, broke. Like it was, it was, it was busted. Um, like I couldn't even close the driver's door at all. Like it was stuck in a perpetual open position and not like that, like the hinges were open. It was like the latch where the door meets the car. Something was like, it was just like, it was open. So I couldn't close the door, if that makes sense. Um, 
And I had my my good friend and my mom who were looking at it, and you know these two are like pretty savvy people, and you know they were all up in it, and they were they were looking at this door for like maybe my time blindness was going awry, but in my mind I was like, bro, like this has been 15, 20 minutes of the two of them like jamming screwdrivers and stuff all up in this door, and I was just watching them try the same thing over and over and over again with like slight differences, and then finally I was like, oh, can I try something? And I reached over and I opened the door from the inside of the car and that fixed the problem immediately. And they were both like, oh my God, they were like flabbergasted. They were in awe that I was able to do that. But really for me, it just made the most sense to try as many and as different of ways to try to open this damn door, right? And I think for us, it's a lot easier to move on to a new way of doing something or trying a new skill or trying a new idea because one, we just get bored with the first way, (laughs) like plain and simple. And two, we don't have as many inhibitions about sticking to one particular way. And I think that's where some of this like impulsivity comes into play. Um, The other thing that I really want to talk about is intrinsic motivation. So the definition that I have for you is from Frontiers in Neurobiotics. And it is uh, intrinsic motivation is defined as the doing of an activity for its inherent satisfaction rather than for some separable consequence. So in contrast, extrinsic, extrinsic (laughs) motivation is a construct that pertains whenever an activity is done in order to attain some separable outcome. So you're doing something because there's going to be a punishment or a reward. Like in school, you do your homework because if you don't, you'll get bad grades and then you can't go to school, college, and then you'll fail in life, et cetera, et cetera. At least that's, you know, the story they told us, right? Or in school, you're really quiet and you, you know, raise your hand and you participate in class, but you're not talking over people because then you get a gold star for the day, right? So these are rewards or punishments, positive or negative reinforcement that get us to do things. And currently, the way that it stands, the entire school system, like from kindergarten, even before that, from like preschool all the way up until college everything is extrinsically extrinsically motivated obviously once you get to college like there are some things that you can sort of control like what you're studying or what classes you're taking and there is some interest there but you like aren't necessarily doing the homework for each class because you want to right like you are writing these papers because you have to and if you don't there will be severe negative consequences, right? So intrinsic motivation essentially just means doing things that feel good, right? Obviously, maybe not obviously, but I'm 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 assuming many of us have experienced hyperfocus, that feeling that we cannot stop doing something that we're really interested in. And you know, for me, that sometimes manifests in working on the podcast or on my website. When I was in school, I was really good at hyper-focusing on writing because that was something that I really like enjoyed. Because for me, it was like I was writing stories. I was writing plays from my brain. So like these were like thing. This wasn't like, you know, an essay that I needed to do a bunch of research on. Like essays was no good. No, 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 no. But plays like, oh, give me a scene to write. I'm like, oh, mama, because like these are like just concepts that I'm building in my brain. Like, of course, I'm intrinsically motivated by it because it connects to my like personhood, right? Like this connects to 
who I am as a person because I get to create these narratives. I get to create these characters. I get to create the worlds that I'm building within that story, right? Um, but other things like reading or completing like, you know, math problems weren't as interesting to me. So I had a really hard time sitting down and actually doing them. Um, the other thing, like when I was in grade school was theater, like no one was forcing me to audition for shows or, you know, like go to rehearsal every night. Like I chose to do this thing because I enjoyed it. And it, there was no real benefit to it other than, you know, <laughs> the glory of being on stage. But also, you know, like, looks good on a college resume, blah, 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 right? But really, it was just, I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed the attention. I enjoyed people laughing when I would speak, right? Like, I love to, like, command a crowd. Um, and also, I enjoyed... Well, you know, maybe we could talk about this a little bit later, but I, I enjoyed what the theater was offering me, which was community and also tactics in how to communicate with people. Um, like, I don't think I really started to understand what masking was until I realized that a lot of the masking traits that I was exhibiting in my adulthood were learned social behaviors from the theater, right? Like I learned how to, you know, fix my face. I learned how to look people in the eye. I learned how to hold a conversation. I learned how to, um, you know, do improv. Like these things, even though they were interesting and fun to me at the time, looking back, I think really contributed to my uh, you know, status as like a masking adult, um, because it was really easy for me to put on a show, right? Like, especially like when I'm at work now, so I work at a nonprofit, um, and I like manage the operations there. And so I have to talk to like a lot of people that I don't really know or really like necessarily want to talk to. Like people just come like contractors or people come in and I don't necessarily always want to like chat with these people like I want to just sit down and do my work but I have to chat with these people like I have to welcome them in and or you know when I was working in food service or customer service like you have to be nice and that for me felt like a character I was putting on but I, I wasn't a character it was Kyla who was sitting there pretending to be nice and pretending to be smiley and bubbly and it's like oh no worries you know what I mean like oh my god that's so cringe <laughs> Um, how did I get this far off the topic? Intrinsic motivation. But yeah, it was, it was something that I wasn't getting anything out of it, but a sense of pride in my own work. And that's why I continued to show up to do it. That's why I continued to audition for shows. That's why I studied it in college. Right. Um, which kind of ruined it for me because then the intrinsic motivation suddenly became, you know, extrinsic, but Intrinsic motivation is also really important when it comes to teaching and childcare because I think a lot of the time we expect children to be good at things or expect them to focus effortlessly on things that are, you know, honestly like boring as hell. And we don't take enough time to invest in topics or concepts or media that genuinely interest the children and the teens that we're, you know, teaching. 
And if, you know, you're interested in learning more about intrinsic motivation in, in children and in adults, um, and the problems with extrinsically motivating everyone via money and prizes and food and other rewards, you should definitely check out the book Punished by Rewards by Alfie Cohn. I read this book for my educational psychology course in college, and it's really stuck with me ever since. I return to it quite a bit, quite honestly. Um, so yeah, I really recommend that. It's a bit of a long read, and you know, some of it is more interesting than others, but um, it's really interesting to think about how rewards and, you know, positive reinforcement for a job well done really pushes kids to value other people's opinions of them and of their work more than valuing the sense of satisfaction you get from doing something that you enjoy. So yeah, that's just something to think about. Um, Okay, let's move on. I also want to talk about creative careers, like my personal experience in navigating building a career as a creative and how I've sort of navigated the last, you know, five years out of college. So I started my, you know, quote unquote career in the theater and now I manage the operations of a national historic site. So I, you know, I've been around the block in the arts and culture sector, but I've worked in house management, theater admin, arts admin, arts education, um, and also just making art, right? And for me, I think a lot about the term shadow career. And I don't know if Julia Cameron originated this term or this concept, but I think I first read about it in Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way. And essentially it just means that creative people who are artists in their young adult lives or in their childhood end up sometimes choosing careers that are tangentially related to the thing that they, you know, really want to be doing for better or for worse, I guess. So for example, like if you grew up, you know, as a musician or you were in bands a lot and now your job is, you know, you work for Spotify or you work for a recording label or like a recording studio, um, or you are at like a music editor or like the manager of someone's band, right? You're tangentially doing the thing that you want to be doing, but really you're just supporting other people doing that thing. And for me, this was, I was working at a theater in Chicago and that's what I wanted. Like, I was like, I'm going to work in a theater. I don't care what I have to do. I will, you know, clean off tables and sling coffee, which is what I ended up doing, right? Like I was working in a cafe in a theater and then eventually I moved up into the administrative like portion of things. But as I was, you know, sitting at my little computer doing my little type, type, types, I was like, I am not doing the thing that I want to do. Like I was processing payments for artists who were doing the things that I wanted to do. And I was sending emails to board members to schedule a meeting with my boss. And I'm like, what am I even doing at this point? Right? Like I'm not even doing, I'm not writing. I'm not acting. I'm not like getting myself out there. I'm not making connections. I'm just watching it happen. And then I sort of get this feeling that I'm making it happen, but really I'm just watching it happen. I'm just watching it from the sidelines or I'm watching it from, you know, not necessarily the sidelines, but 
you know, from, you know, from the outfield and sort of watching all the action happen. Uh, I can't, I don't know why I'm trying to do sports metaphors, LOL. <laughs> um, but yeah, personally, I like, I genuinely enjoy administrative work and I never thought I would say that, you know, I, I enjoy when things are easy to navigate and understand. And I think a lot of what administrative work is just creating systems with ease. And I have a lot of, I, I get a lot of joy out of creating systems. Um, and I think a lot of that is, is because of my, my ADHD, uh, diagnosis and just sort of having to create systems for myself that I, that work for me. And then being able to implement those types of systems and things that are like, you know, easy to, easy to navigate within working environments. I really enjoy doing that kind of stuff, you know, but for a while I like hated administrative work. I was like resentful that I was, like I said, I was watching, I was watching other people do the things that I wanted to do and I was supporting them, which, you know, there, there's some, you know, value in that, but really I didn't have the time or energy to be doing the thing that I wanted to do because I was putting so much time and effort into doing this shadow, the shadow career. Um, and you know, I was working in that theater doing, you know, customer service and, and administrative work. And, and I was, I was trying to convince myself, like, I'm making connections and I'm networking. Like, this is net positive. Like, I'm working on my, like, network. You know what I mean? Like, I, I like, was trying to convince myself that this was actually work that was benefiting my artistic career. And in some, you know, in some ways, that was true. I made a lot of friends who ended up being collaborators or, you know, we've just continued to be good friends and, and supporters of each other. So of course there were some, some pros, but I wasn't really networking. I was, I was making oat milk lattes for people who were doing things that I yearned to do. And I, and I would ask them, you know, like, how are you doing today? <laughs> you know, like that's not networking. And like, yeah. I, I was just trying to convince myself that I was genuinely being creative, but I was, I was making sandwiches. I was sending emails, you know, these were two different jobs, obviously, but, um, I digress. Uh, but when it comes to like food service specifically, regardless of whether you're in like a theater or a museum doing food service, or you're just at, you know, a regular cup of Joe cafe, there's a lot of pros to that kind of job. There's a flexible schedule usually you're, you end up working with like other creatives and other artists who don't want to like be pencil pushers at a like nine to five job. And often like, like everyone I've ever worked with in a coffee shop, I've worked at like multiple coffee shops. Like everyone is kind, everyone is creative. And I got to be surrounded by, you know, when I was working in a theater as a, as a barista, I was, I got to be surrounded by the kind of art that I wanted to be making at the time. And also I got free coffee. So, you know, there were pros, it, it, you know, it didn't require a lot of brain power to make coffee and food. And I could reserve that brain power for my creative things. Like I remember some of the most writing that I got done while I was in Chicago was when I was working at the, at the coffee shop, because I would just show up like a few hours early for my shift. Like maybe I had a shift at four o'clock and then I would show up at like one o'clock or two o'clock and I would sit at the bar 
and I would drink free coffee all afternoon and wait for my job to start while I was like, you know, tip tap tap tapping away on my computer writing scripts and stuff and then as soon as I moved into the administrative role I guess you know things were different because it was the same time as COVID so I moved into the administrative role at the theater at the same time that COVID hit so obviously like shit was crazy so you know I should give myself some credit but yeah like I think the main thing was like I didn't have to think that hard at my coffee job I had to be nice and that kind of sucked sometimes especially to people who were like dicks and didn't tip or you know would like give us a hard time but you know and there were other cons it didn't pay a ton I wasn't being paid for my creativity or my ideas I was being paid to you know like I said sling coffee to people who made a lot more money than me um And sometimes people were rude or entitled, but most of the time everyone was like so kind and so generous with their, with their time. And there were a lot of like, like micro celebrities that we would end up, not micro, but like some macro, like some big celebrities, um, would come through and we'd get to serve them and chat with them and they were really nice. But other than that, it was just a coffee job and I was able to take classes on the weekends and in the evenings and stuff and work on and work on my craft. So I also want to give some more advice for someone who wants to build a career as a creative and be able to invest time in their creativity. I think the main thing that you need to do is you need to decide what is more important at this current point in time. Do you need to be making money off of your creative endeavors? Is that the like, is that your goal right now? Or do you need time and energy to build your portfolio without the pressures of, of making money off of your art? Because brain power is finite, right? There are only so many fires you can put out in your day job while also saving up the energy to go home and write or paint or dance or whatever it is you do. The other thing you need to do, the other thing you need to decide is if you really want to be doing, you know, what, like, I call industry administrative work. So like, do you want to do admin shit at a museum or a theater or work in like editing or producing, or do you want to be making your own shit? Because there is no shame in having an irrelevant day job that pays the bills. You don't necessarily need to be up in the studio supporting other artists for your day job and then still have to try to go home and use a bunch of energy to build your own shit because that is hard. It is hard to be creative all the time. Like what I love so much about my nonprofit job right now is one, it you know, flexible schedule, great like great coworkers, a lot of time off, right? But it doesn't require me to use the part of my brain that I reserve for things like making art or recording the podcast, right? I'm just, I'm just click clacking away on my computer. I'm just filing things. I'm paying bills. I, you know, I'm not just doing these things. There's lots of things I do with this job, but it is nourishing for me to have a job that pays well and also doesn't require me to use the part of my brain that I want to reserve for creative endeavors. Um, and that was my most important thing right now It's like, I could be working at, you know, a museum or like a, an arts organization 
and get paid a lot less and more often than not do a lot more stuff that's going to stress me the hell out. And then I'll go home and I don't have time to like write or I don't have time to like, you know, sew or work on my books or whatever, you know. So, you know, that's something that you really need to decide. Is that some like, do you want to be in the industry doing stuff that isn't what you want to be doing? Or do you just want to have a job, make money, and then be able to build your portfolio on the side? But of course, you know, there is value in getting the behind the scenes experience of the administrative side of things, especially if you want to start your own business someday, or if you plan to work for yourself as an artist, like as a creative, like you're going to have to learn the administrative stuff. So you might as well get paid while you learn the ins and outs the ins and outs of your respective industry, right? So, you know, like if you're an artist, there's a lot of benefits to working in a gallery, right? Like you're meeting people, you're learning how artists build relationships with gallerists, right? Like with sellers, with people who are going to be champions of your work. And, you know, you're learning how to make those connections. You're not just sitting at a desk and typing. Honestly, every time I go to, every time I go to like a big gallery, especially in New York, there's always like, just like some like 26 year old girly sitting at like a desk with absolutely nothing on the desk, but just her MacBook. And I'm like, and there's no one in the gallery ever. So it's always just so confusing to me. And, and sometimes they say hi and sometimes they don't. It's like, I don't understand why you can't say hi to me when I come into this gallery, like, what are you doing otherwise? Like, you're, I, I know you probably have things to do, but come on. Like, I'm the only person in this gallery. Like, yes, I'm not going to buy, like, a $50,000 painting, but I do want to look at the stuff, and I, it is important for you to say hello to me. Sorry, I'm getting off topic. Sometimes I just get annoyed about the way that, you know, the elitist gallery energy. But um, the other thing that I think is kind of adjacent to this is teaching your craft, So if you get joy and inspiration from teaching your skills and knowledge to children or teens or adults or whoever your audience is, then that is awesome. Like truly such a great way to stay working in your field while also be able to have your own creative practice. But also like teaching is hard. It is hard, especially teaching children. They're a great audience, let me tell you, but it is hard work. And you know, I only did it. Oh, sorry for the beep. Um, I only was teaching for about a year and I was just like a teaching artist. So I wasn't even like a full-time teacher and that was difficult. Like if you're not willing to do that kind of emotional work, then I would suggest, you know, reconsider teaching if it's not like, cause it's going to drain you. It's going to drain you like emotionally. Um, some advice for finding time and motivation to create or, on building a studio practice as okay I'm gonna start that over so I also want to talk about building a studio practice as an adult and finding time and motivation to create in a very busy and complicated world that puts a lot of demands on us um so the first thing I would say is let yourself be creative when it hits you on a walk on the toilet in the shower you know our best thoughts are not always going to come to us when we've carved out the time to think and do the work for ourselves, right? Like how many times has this happened to you when you like sit down at the computer to write or you go to the studio to dance and then all of a sudden you're like, ugh, like there's nothing, there's nothing to come out, right? But when you're walking down the street, walking your roommate's dog or, you know, just having your little morning cup of joe, something pops in your head and you're like, wow, what an amazing idea. Like write it down. 
Like you need to let yourself be creative when it hits you. Like take a second, take a break, walk off to the side and write it down. Which brings me to tip number two, which is take notes. Take notes on the bus, at work, in line at the grocery store, watch people, listen to people, write down what you loved in the last episode you watched on TV, right? Inspiration is everywhere. And let me tell you, you are not going to remember. You are not going to remember that little moment that you like witnessed of two like strangers like sharing just like such a tender mo- You're not going to remember it unless you write it down. So you need to write it down. I know it's weird, but stop, take a second. Just take a pic or jot it down in your little notion and then keep it pushing, right? The other thing I'll say is start small. If you do not have a consistent creative practice and it's something that you want to get into or something that you want to get back into, start small. Like do some sketching or some crocheting or something that's like kind of, you know, not too much of a commitment that you can do while you're watching TV or listening to a podcast or, you know, doing something that you already enjoy doing in your day to day, pair the creativity with your current routine, your current routine, and then slowly start to carve out the time specifically to make things. So for me, like, as I was learning to crochet, I would do it while I was watching TV with my boyfriend at night. Right. And then suddenly I started to like carve more time out specifically to make projects and to sew on linings and stuff like that. Um, Okay, this next tip that I will say, not really a tip, but it's my favorite thing, is take a little class. I love a little class. And, And like you can find affordable classes at community centers and libraries and the internet. Like I, on my birthday, I went to a book arts class at the library in Philadelphia Um, and it was like making books, like stage books. So it was like a little, like a little theatrical scene made out of paper and it was so fun and it was free. It was fully funded by the library and like, it was like a three hour class and it was like, like I learned a new skill. I met some great people. I had some like great conversation and it really jump-started a lot of ideas about some other books that I wanted to be doing, and it was free. So let me tell you, I cannot tell you how much better my like general quality of life got when I started taking little classes. So like, I started taking printmaking classes, dancing classes, writing, book arts, you name it. I'm taking a little class. There's not a single week that goes by that I'm not taking a little class, to be quite honest. Like, maybe that's not true. I don't take a little class every single week. But... At least once a month, definitely sometimes twice a month, right? Um, and this is also a really great way to meet other artists and creatives in your area. And, you, you know, can start to build a network and follow people on Instagram and see what other people in your, like, general age range and, like, skill range, like, what they're making and, and how they're building a career for themselves, right? Um, another great idea, <laughs> if I do say so myself, is find or build or... Uh, sorry, another great idea, if I do say so myself, is build or find a co-create or co-working group. So something a few of my friends and I have implemented in the last few months is what we like to call writing club. <laughs> so each week, one of us hosts the others and we cook a meal and gab and then we spend about a half an hour to an hour working on our own personal writing projects. And, you know, some nights we get more writing done than others. But it's generally been such a, like, net positive in terms of building a habit of creating and building a habit of writing. 
And this really gets at the concept of body doubling, which if you're not familiar with the term, it's this phenomenon where it's just generally easier for folks with ADHD to get things done when someone else is in the room. Even if they're not working on the same thing as you, just like someone sitting in the room will like trick your brain into thinking like, I need to be doing this thing. Like I need to be doing this thing. Um, so yeah, even when we don't write, like it's just nice to spend time with friends and talk about our projects and talk about the things in our lives because that will get your creative juices flowing no matter what. And the last major piece of advice that I have is less advice and more, you know, a call to action, an opportunity for you to think about the creativity in your life and what role you want it to serve. So like, is this something, is your craft, is this something that you genuinely want to build a career out of? Because making it your work and making it your main source or sometimes only source of income might take some of the novelty and dopamine out of it and it might turn it into a demand which then just makes it no fun <laughs> you know like is that something that you really want to get yourself into or is this a practice that you want to build out of a sense of self-care and recreation because there's no shame in being someone who doesn't want to make money off of their art. You're still an artist. You're still a creative, even if it's not how you pay the bills. So I just want to be clear about that. Um, okay, let's get to the hottie hot take. Today's hottie take is Giving yourself the time and space to create is one of the kindest and most nourishing things you can do as someone with ADHD, especially when you're creating without any expectation. No grades, no sales, no IG posts, just making and doing for making and doing sake, right? I think it's so beautiful and it's really helped me in the last five years make sense of what I'm experiencing in my brain and it's really helped me build my confidence in so many realms of my life. So I don't know if that's a hot take. I, th I think it's just like a nice little sentence, but... Anyway, that's what you get. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I really appreciate you stopping by. And of course, I hope you stick around. Make sure to follow the podcast at Hyperactive Hotties on Instagram. And if you want to follow my personal account, it's at Kyla Makes Art. That's K-Y-L-A-M-A-K-E-S-A-R-T. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter to stay up to date about new stuff going on in the land of hyperactivity, such as new episodes, resources, and more, you can go to tinyurl.com slash email to sign up for my newsletter. And definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you can be notified when a new episode comes out. We are on Spotify and we are on Apple Podcasts. So until next time, stay grateful, stay sexy, and take care of yourself. Bye.